When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I was going to say that I'm not aware of any poet other than Seamus Heaney who has written such wonderful poems about his parents uh, from his first collection in the mid-60s all, all the way until his death. He published wonderful remembrances of his mother and father. But then I realized I can't think of any other major poet at all who has written much of anything about their parents. Uh, if anyone can think of any other than Seamus Heaney, do send me an email. It's always in the post description, but uh, I really can't. And in a way, Seamus Heaney's career begins with a poem about his father. Uh, in his earliest collection, Death of a Naturalist, from 1966, there is Heaney's fav uh, famous poem called Digging, um, where he chooses... Uh, the life of the pen rather than the spade as he watches his father digging and also remembers his grandfather doing the same digging. Um, I've always found that poem to be a little overplayed. Uh, it seems to be the go-to for Heaney and I'm not really sure uh, uh, if that is to be recommended for somebody like him. Um, it's the easy one to go to but uh, at least for me, if I want to go to a poem about his father or a good way to get into Heaney in his first collection, the one that I will go, would go to is the following. It's called Follower. My father worked with a horse plow. His shoulders globed like a full sail, strung between the shafts and the furrow. The horse strained at his clicking tongue, an expert. He would set the wing and fit the bright steel-pointed sock. The sod rolled over without breaking at the head rig with a single pluck of reins. The sweating team turned round and back into the land. His eye narrowed and angled the ground, mapping the furrow exactly. I stumbled in his hobnailed wake fell sometimes on the polished sod. Sometimes he rode me on his back, dipping and rising to his plod. I wanted to grow up and plow, to close one eye, stiffen my arm. All I ever did was follow in his broad shadow round the farm. I was a nuisance, tripping, falling, yapping always. But today it is my father who keeps stumbling behind me,
and will not go away. And that brings on, uh, that brings not just memories from Heaney's childhood and not just his uh, well-known rural subjects, but it also takes, I think uh, Heaney was 25 or 26 by the time this was published in Death of a Naturalist. It already sort of imagines him as being a lot older than he is and with his doddering father following behind him. Uh, this seems to me a good place to start reading Seamus Heaney's poetry. Now that I'm done with uh, uh, doing Robinson Jeffers here on this podcast, I'd like to start doing Heaney. And I thought that Follower would be a good place to begin. Love, I shall perfect for you the child who diligently potters in my brain, digging with heavy spade till sods were piled or puddling through muck in a deep drain. Yearly I would sow my yard-long garden. I'd strip a layer of sods to build the wall that was to exclude sow and pecking hen. Yearly, admitting these, the sods would fall. Or... In the sucking clabber I would splash delightedly and dam the flowing drain, but always my bastions of clay and mush would burst before the rising autumn rain. Love, you shall perfect for me this child whose small imperfect limits would keep breaking. Within new limits now, arrange the world within our walls, within our golden ring. Here is a third poem from Seamus Heaney's first collection, and it gives a good idea not just of where he was early in his career, uh, writing about the farm and writing about the earth, but it also kind of puts the lie to the idea of Heaney as some sort of, uh, well, I have Whitman on the mind lately, uh, something like a Whitman figure who is always just writing about pleasant and happy things. Um, I don't really know how that reputation would have attached itself to Heaney, except maybe that's the reputation that a poet who becomes as famous as he does or, or, or well-known as him, you have to assume that they're some sort of, some version of uh, easy listening. Um, but that is definitely not the case with Heaney. And you can see here, as in many of the poems in his first collection, that uh, there is uh, a great buried darkness and uh, later uh, buried violence that is at the bottom of a great deal of his poetry. And this is a poem called Personal Helicon. As a child, they could not keep me from wells and old pumps with buckets and windlasses. I loved the dark drop, the trapped sky, 
the smells of waterweed, fungus, and dank moss. One in a brickyard with a rotted board top. I savored the rich crash when a bucket plummeted down at the end of a rope, so deep you saw no reflection in it. A shallow one under a dry stone ditch, fructified like any aquarium. When you dragged out long roots from the soft mulch, a white face hovered over the bottom. Others had echoes, gave back your own call with a clean new music in it. And one was scarcome, for there, out of the ferns and tall foxgloves, a rat slapped across my reflection. Now, to pry into roots, to finger slime, to stare, big-eyed Narcissus, into some spring, is beneath all adult dignity. I rhyme to see myself, to set the darkness echoing. Now, for me at least, I think that might be the last poem in his first collection. That does the same job of digging, but much better, he says at the end of digging. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, as opposed to the spade, and I will dig with it. And for me, I rhyme to see myself to set the darkness echoing. Uh, does that a little better. But this is uh, a good start here to reading some Seamus Heaney. These are two poems from Seamus Heaney's second collection, Door into the Dark, from 1969. And they continue the theme that I mentioned in uh, the last episode of the buried darkness and violence that is inherent in Seamus Heaney's poetry. Um, he is not all uh, quaint Irish wisdom and lightness. Uh, I don't think he is that at all. Even in his very last poems, uh, there remains um, a very disgruntled edge to what he is getting at. The first is a poem called Dream. With a billhook whose head was hand-forged heavy, I was hacking a stalk thick as a telegraph pole. My sleeves were rolled in the air fanned cool past my arms as I swung and buried the blade, then labored to work it unstuck. The next stroke found a man's head under the hook. Before I woke, I heard the steel stop in the bone of the brow. And the next one is uh, one of Heaney's fav famous poems called The Forge. All I know is a door into the dark. Outside, old axles and iron hoops rusting. Inside, the hammered anvil's short-pitched ring. The unpredictable fantail of sparks or hiss when a new shoe toughens in water. The anvil must be somewhere in the center, horned as a unicorn, at one end square, set there immovable. An altar, 
where he expends himself in shape and music. Sometimes, leather aproned, hairs in his nose, he leans out on the jam, recalls a clatter of hoofs where traffic is flashing in rows, then grunts and goes in with a slam and a flick to beat real iron out, to work the bellows. Here is a third poem from Seamus Heaney's 1969 collection, Door into the Dark. Uh, it's called Bogland, and it's dedicated to T.P. Flanagan. And we can see here, and in a poem from his next collection, three years later, how he is heading towards the great uh, savage poems in his 1975 book, North. This is Bogland. We have no prairies to slice a big sun at evening. Everywhere the eye concedes to encroaching horizon is wooed into the cyclops eye of a tarn. Our unfenced country is bog that keeps crusting between the sights of the sun. They've taken the skeleton of the great Irish elk out of the peat set it up an astounding crate full of air. Butter sunk under more than a hundred years was recovered salty and white. The ground itself is kind black butter, melting and opening underfoot, missing its last definition by millions of years. They'll never dig coal here. Only the waterlogged trunks of great firs, soft as pulp. Our pioneers keep striking inwards and downwards. Every layer they strip seems camped on before. The bog holes might be Atlantic seepage. The wet center is bottomless. I'm fairly certain that that is also the last poem in his second book, and it recalls the last poem in his first book, where he is recalling a moment as a, as a child uh, looking down at wells. And he says, I rhyme to see myself to set the darkness echoing. And that becomes one of uh, Heaney's chief concerns, looking down into the dirty water, looking down at what may or may not be one's own reflection, looking down underground and seeing what it is that looks back. The Tolland Man by Seamus Heaney Some day I will go to Arhus to see his peat-brown head, the mild pods of his eyelids, his pointed skin cap. In the flat country nearby where they dug him out, his last gruel of winter seeds caked in his stomach, 
naked except for the cap, noose, and girdle. I will stand a long time. Bridegroom to the goddess, she tightened her torque on him and opened her fen. Those dark juices working him to a saint's kept body. Trove of the turf cutter's honeycombed workings. Now his stained face reposes at Arhus. I could risk blasphemy, consecrate the cauldron bog our holy ground, and pray him to make germinate the scattered, ambushed flesh of laborers, stocking the corpses laid out in the farmyards, tell-tale skin and teeth, flecking the sleepers of four young brothers, trailed for miles along the lines. Something of his sad freedom, as he rode the tumbrel, should come to me, driving, saying the names Poland, Grabal, Nebelgard, watching the pointing hands of country people, not knowing their tongue. Out here in Jutland, in the old man-killing parishes, I will feel lost, unhappy, and at home. And I didn't really want to do a preface to that poem, uh, and I'm not really quite sure what to say now, except that uh, this will be the first of three poems from Seamus Heaney's 1972 book, Wintering Out. Uh, if we recall, uh, I believe it was in 1968 or 1969 that he mentions reading uh, P.V. Glob's book uh, about the bog bodies of uh, Iron Age Europe. And throughout the poems that I've read up until now, uh, he has been approaching what is buried, what is underneath, what is underground. Um, and as I mentioned in a previous episode, uh, reading from an interview with Seamus Heaney, he also sees the underground as being uh, a place of creativity. Uh, darkness is not necessarily a negative thing. As I read in the end of his poem, Personal Helican, uh, the narrator of the poem says, I rhyme to see myself staring down into a well. I rhyme to see myself to set the darkness echoing. And uh, in a way, uh, this poem, The Tolland Man, which took three or four years from the reading of uh, P.V. Glob's book uh, to reach print, um, it is also just looking ahead, as I think this collection does, to Seamus Heaney's next collection called North in 1975. Uh, I am sort of focusing on the uh, the darker in the negative sense uh, of Heaney's poetry. I, I see that now. Uh, the more merely violent ones, or merely uh, sad and apparently uh, hopeless ones, as you'll see in the next poem uh, for tomorrow called Limbo. 
uh, it's very easy and uh, I can see it myself and I agree with it sometimes that uh, what perhaps made Heaney so popular was that he was careful. He would probably hate to hear anyone say that, but there was a sense about him that uh, uh, would not risk too much, it seemed like. Um, but I think he hits the note uh, straight on the head here. He's uh, imagining going to Jutland where he will feel lost, unhappy, and at home. Uh, those three uh, those three words, lost, unhappy, and at home, seem perfect to me sometimes if you're trying to describe uh, the life or the mind of, uh, of a poet, uh, either trying to conjure up the Iron Age, um, finding himself or herself attached to something so unlike the modern world and wondering why they feel pulled in that direction, or just uh, the loneliness of having the impulse to write poetry or be creative at all. I think he hits the note right there. Um, and I'll leave it there for now. Limbo by Seamus Heaney Fisherman at Ballyshannon netted an infant last night, along with the salmon. An illegitimate spawning, a small one thrown back to the waters. But I'm sure as she stood in the shallows, ducking him tenderly till the frozen knobs of her wrists were dead as the gravel, he was a minnow with hooks, tearing her open. She waded in under the sign of the cross. He was hauled in with the fish. Now Limbo will be a cold glitter of souls through some far briny zone. Even Christ's palms unhealed, smart, and cannot fish there. First Calf by Seamus Heaney It's a long time since I saw the afterbirth strung on the hedge, as if the wind smarted and streamed bloodshot tears. Somewhere about, the cow stands with her head, almost outweighing her tense, sloped neck, the calf hard at her udder. The shallow bowls of her eyes tilt membrane and fluid. The warm plaque of her snout gathers a growth round moist nostrils. 
Her hide stays warm in the wind. Her wide eyes read nothing. The semaphores of hurt swaddle and flap on a bush. Belderg by Seamus Heaney They just keep turning up and were thought of as foreign. One-eyed and benign, they lie about his house, cairn stones out of a bog. To lift the lid of the peat and find this pupil dreaming of Neolithic wheat. When he stripped off blanket bog, the soft-piled centuries fell open like a glib. There were the first plow marks, the Stone Age fields, the tomb corbelled, turfed, and chambered, floored with dry turf comb. A landscape fossilized, its stone wall patternings repeated before our eyes in the stone walls of Mayo. Before I turned to go, he talked about persistence, a congruence of lives, how stubbed and cleared of stones his home accrued growth rings of iron, flint, and bronze. So I talked of Mossbon, a bogland name, but Moss? He crossed my old home's music with older strains of Norse. I'd told how its foundation was mutable as sound, and how I could derive the forked root from that ground, make Bon an English fort, a planter's walled-in mound, or else find sanctuary and think of it as Irish, persistent, if outworn. But the Norse ring on your tree? I passed through the eye of the cairn, grist to an ancient mill, and in my mind's eye saw a world tree of balanced stones, cairns piled like vertebrae, the marrow crushed to grounds. Funeral Rites by Seamus Heaney I shouldered a kind of manhood, stepping in to lift the coffins of dead relations. They had been laid out in tainted rooms, their eyelids glistening, their dull white hands shackled in rosary beads. Their puffed knuckles head unwrinkled, the nails were darkened, the wrists obediently sloped. The dulse brown shroud, the quilted satin cribs. I knelt courteously, admiring it all, as wax melted down and veined the candles, the flames hovering to the women hovering behind me. And always in a corner, 
the coffin lid, its nail heads dressed with little gleaming crosses. Dear soapstone masks, kissing their igloo brows, had to suffice before the nails were sunk and the black glacier of each funeral pushed away. Now, as news comes in of each neighborly murder, we pine for ceremony, customary rhythms, the temperate footsteps of a cortege winding past each blinded home. I would restore the great chambers of Boyne, prepare a sepulchre under the cup-marked stones. Out of side streets and by-roads, purring family cars, nose into line, the whole country tunes to the muffled drumming of ten thousand engines. Somnambulant women left behind move through emptied kitchens, imagining our slow triumph toward the mounds. Quiet as a serpent in its grassy boulevard, the procession drags its tail out of the gap of the north as its head already enters the megalithic doorway. When they have put the stone back in its mouth, we will drive north again past Strang and Carling Fjords, the cud of memory allayed for once, arbitration of the feud placated, imagining those under the hill disposed like Gunnar, who lay beautiful inside his burial mound, though dead by violence and unavenged. Men said that he was chanting verses about honor, and that four lights burned in corners of the chamber, which opened then as he turned with a joyful face to look at the moon. Bog Queen by Seamus Heaney I lay waiting between turf face and demine wall, between heathery levels and glass-toothed stone. My body was braille for the creeping influences. Dawn suns groped over my head and cooled at my feet. Through my fabrics and skins, the seeps of winter digested me. The illiterate roots pondered and died in the cavings of stomach and socket. I lay waiting on the gravel bottom, my brain darkening, a jar of spawn fermenting underground, dreams of Baltic amber. Bruised berries under my nails, the vital horde reducing in the crock of the pelvis. My diadem grew carious, gemstones dropped and the peat flow like the bearings of history. My sash was a black glacier 
wrinkling dyed weaves and finishing stitchwork, redded on my breast's soft moraines. I knew winter cold like the nuzzle of fjords at my thighs, the soaked fledge, the heavy swaddle of hides. My skull hibernated in the wet nest of my hair, which they robbed. I was barbered and stripped by a turf-cutter's spade, who veiled me again and packed coom softly between the stone jams at my head and my feet, till a peer's wife bribed him. The plate of my hair, a slimy birth-cord of bog, had been cut, and I rose from the dark, hacked-bone, skull-ware, frayed stitches, tufts, small gleams on the bank. The Grabal Man by Seamus Heaney As if he had been poured in tar, he lies on a pillow of turf and seems to weep the black river of himself. The grain of his wrists is like bog oak, the ball of his heel like a basalt egg. His instep has shrunk cold as a swan's foot or a wet swamp root. His hips are the ridge and purse of a muscle, his spine and eel arrested under a glisten of mud. The head lifts, the chin as a visor, raised above the vent of his slashed throat that has tanned and toughened. The cured wound opens inward to a dark, elderberry place. Who will say corpse to his vivid cast? Who will say body to his opaque repose? And his rusted hair, a mat unlikely as a fetus's. I first saw his twisted face in a photograph, a head and shoulder out of the peat bruised like a forceps baby. But now he lies, perfected in my memory, down to the red horn of his nails, hung in the scales with beauty and atrocity, with the dying gall too strictly compassed on his shield, with the actual weight of each hooded victim, slashed and dumped. Punishment by Seamus Heaney I can feel the tug of the halter at the nape of her neck, the wind on her naked front. It blows her nipples to amber beads. It shakes the frail rigging of her ribs. 
I can see her drowned body in the bog, the weighing stone, the floating rods and boughs, under which at first she was a barked sapling that has dug up oak bone, brain, firkin, her shaved head like a stubble of black corn, her blindfold a soiled bandage, her noose a ring to store the memories of love. Little adulteress, before they punished you, you were flaxen-haired, undernourished, and your tar-black face was beautiful. My poor scapegoat, I almost love you, but would have cast, I know, the stones of silence. I am the artful voyeur of your brain's exposed and darkened combs, your muscles webbing in all your numbered bones. I, who have stood dumb when your betraying sisters, called in tar, wept by the railings, who would connive in civilized outrage, yet understand the exact and tribal intimate revenge. Strange Fruit by Seamus Heaney Here is the girl's head like an exhumed gourd, oval-faced, prune-skinned, prune-stones for teeth. They unswaddled the wet fern of her hair and made an exhibition of its coil, let the air at her leathery beauty. Pash of tallow, perishable treasure. Her broken nose is dark as a turf clod. Her eye-holes blank as pools in the old workings. Diodorus Siculus confessed his gradual ease with the likes of this murdered, forgotten, nameless, terrible, beheaded girl, out-staring acts and beatification out-staring what had begun to feel like reverence. Kinship by Seamus Heaney Kinned by hieroglyphic peat on a spread field to the strangled victim, the love nest in the bracken, I step through origins like a dog, turning its memories of wilderness and the kitchen mat. The bog floor shakes water cheeps and lisps as I walk down rushes and heather. I love this tough face, its black incisions the cooped secrets of process and ritual. I love the spring off the ground, each bank a gallows drop, each open pool the unstopped mouth of an urn, a moon drinker, not to be sounded by the naked eye. 
quagmire, swampland, morass, the slime kingdoms, domains of the cold-blooded, of mud-pads and dirtied eggs, but bog, meaning soft, the fall of windless rain, pupil of amber, ruminant ground, digestion of mollusk and seed-pod, deep pollen-bin, earth pantry, bone vault, sun-bank, embalmer of votive gods and sabred fugitives, insatiable bride, sword-swallower, casket, midden, flow of history, ground that will strip its dark side, nesting ground, out back of my mind. I found a turf spade hidden under bracken, laid flat and overgrown with a green fog. As I raised it, the soft lips of the growth muttered and split, a tawny rut opening at my feet like a shed skin, the shaft wettish as I sank it upright and beginning to steam in the sun. And now they have twinned that obelisk, among the stones under a beaded cairn a love-nest is disturbed. Catkin and bog-cotton tremble as they raise up the cloven oak limb. I stand at the edge of centuries, facing a goddess. This center holds and spreads, sump and seedbed, a bag of waters and a melting grave. The mothers of autumn sour and sink, ferments of husk and leaf deep in their ochres. Mosses come to a head, heather unseeds, brackens deposit their bronze. This is the vowel of earth, dreaming its root in flowers and snow, mutation of weathers and seasons, a windfall composing the floor it rots into. I grew out of all this like a weeping willow inclined to the appetites of gravity. The hand-carved fellows of the turf cart wheels buried in a litter of turf mold, the cupid's bow of the tailboard, the socketed lips of the cribs, I deified the man who rode there God of the wagon, the hearth-feeder. I was his privileged attendant, a bearer of bread and drink, the squire of his circuits. When summer died and wives forsook the fields, we were abroad, saluted, given right of way. Watch our progress down the hall-lit hedges, my manly pride, when he speaks to me. And you, Tacitus, observe how I make my grove on an old cranog piled by the fearful dead, a desolate peace. Our mother ground is sour with the blood of her faithful. They lie gargling in her sacred heart as the legions stare from the ramparts. 
come back to this island of the ocean where nothing will suffice. Read the inhumed faces of casualty, of victim. Report us fairly how we slaughter for the common good and shave the heads of the notorious, how the goddess swallows our love and terror. Coming down or coming back to poetry after writing the poems that filled his book called North, and not only the writing of that book, but the lead up to it, the slow growth uh, from the early 60s to the mid 70s, uh, I don't think it's that much of a surprise that uh, Heaney's next collection uh, uh, is more slight. At least for me, that's always been the case. And so I wanted to do something uh, different this time around. Uh, there aren't that many poems. There's really only two that I want to share from uh, his next book. And that is uh, 1979, the book called Fieldwork. And I actually wanted to share two poems, uh, one that is from Fieldwork and another that is from his the collection after that called Station Island. Uh, there's a just a brief introduction here. Uh, in 1975, the year that North came out, um, uh, Seamus Heaney's second cousin, a man named Colum McCartney, was a victim of random sectarian assassination by loyalist paramilitaries. And Heaney wrote uh, one poem about him in Fieldwork, and then another poem about him in Station Island, and I think they are both uh, worth reading together, uh, especially to get a sense of how Heaney's ongoing discussion with uh, how to deal with the politics of the time uh, should be handled. And this is uh, his poem, The Strand at Lochbeg in memory of Colum McCartney. And uh, the epigraph to the poem is from Dante's Purgatorio, the first stanza, or the first canto, which says, All around this little island, on the strand far down below there, where the breakers strive, grow the tall rushes from the oozy sand. And this is the poem. Leaving the white glow of filling stations and a few lonely street lamps among fields, you climb the hills toward Newtown Hamilton, past the fuse forest out beneath the stars, along the road a high bare pilgrim's track where Sweeney fled before the bloodied heads, goat beards and dog's eyes in a demon pack blazing out of the ground, snapping and squealing. What blazed ahead of you? A faked roadblock? The red lamp swung, the sudden brakes installing, engine voices, heads hooded, and the cold-nosed gun. 
or in your driving mirror, tailing headlights that pulled out suddenly and flagged you down where you weren't known and far from what you knew. The lowland clays and waters of Loch Beg, Church Island Spire, its soft tree line of you. There you used hear guns fired behind the house long before rising time, where duck shooters haunted the marigolds and bulrushes, but still were scared to find spent cartridges, acrid, brassy, genital, ejected, on your way across the strand to fetch the cows. For you and yours and yours and mine fought shy, spoke an old language of conspirators, and could not crack the whip or seize the day. Big-voiced scullions, herders, feelers round haycocks and hindquarters, talkers and buyers, slow arbitrators of the burial ground. Across that strand of ours, the cattle graze up to their bellies in an early mist, and now they turn their unbewildered gaze to where we work our way through squeaking sedge, drowning in dew, like a dull blade with its edge honed bright, Lochbeg half shines under the haze. I turn because the sweeping of your feet has stopped behind me to find you on your knees with blood and roadside muck in your hair and eyes. Then kneel in front of you in brimming grass and gather up cold handfuls of the dew to wash you, cousin. I dab you clean with moss, fine as the drizzle out of a low cloud. I lift you under the arms and lay you flat, with rushes that shoot green again. I plate green scapulars to wear over your shroud. And that is the poem that Seamus Heaney wrote for his 1979 collection a few years later uh, in his long poem about um, uh, an Irish Catholic pilgrimage site called uh, Station Island. Um, let me see here. Right. Uh, Station Island is a sequence of dream encounters with familiar ghosts set on Station Island in Loch Derg in County Donegal. Uh, the island is also known as St. Patrick's Purgatory because of a tradition that Patrick was the first to establish the penitential vigil of fasting and praying, which still constitutes the basis of a three-day pilgrimage there. Uh, each unit of the contemporary pilgrim's exercises is called a, quote, station, and a large part of each station involves walking barefoot and praying around the beds, the stone circles, which are said to be the remains of early medieval monastic cells. And that is uh, Heaney's own note from 1984 about Station Island. And the eighth poem in this sequence is... Uh, uh, gives more voice to his cousin rather than 
um, rather than Dahini himself. And this is what it says. Take a sip first. It says, black water, white waves, furrows snow-capped. A magpie flew from the basilica and staggered in the granite airy space I was staring into, on my knees at the hard mouth of St. Bridget's bed. I came to, and there, at the bed's stone hub, was my archaeologist, very like himself, with his scribe's face smiling its straight-lipped smile, starting at the sight of me with the same old pretense of amazement, so that the wing of the woodcairn's hair fanned down over his brow. And then, as if a shower were blackening already blackened stubble, the dark weather of his unspoken pain came over him, a pilgrim bent and whispering on his rounds, inside the bed passed between us slowly. And now begins a dialogue. Those dreamy stars that pulsed across the screen beside you in the ward, your heartbeats, Tom, I mean, scared me the way they stripped things naked. My banter failed, too, early in that visit. I could not take my eyes off the machine. I had to head back straight away to Dublin, guilty and empty feeling I had said nothing, and that, as usual, I had somehow broken covenants and failed an obligation. I half knew we would never meet again. Did our long gaze and last handshake contain nothing to appease that recognition? And the voice answers, nothing at all, but familiar stone had me half-numbed to face the thing alone. I loved my still-faced archaeology, the small crabapple physiognomies on high crosses, carved heads in abbeys. Why else dig in for years in that hard place, in a muck of bigotry under the walls, picking through shards and Williamite cannonballs? But all that we just turned to banter to, I felt that I should have seen far more of you, and maybe would have, but dead at thirty-two, ah, poet, lucky poet, tell me why what seemed deserved and promised passed me by. And back to Heaney's thoughts. I could not speak. I saw a horde of black basalt axe heads, smooth as a beetle's back a cairn of stone force that might detonate the eggs of danger. And then I saw a face he had once given me, a plaster cast of an abbess, done by the Gowran master, mild-mouthed and cowled, a character of grace. Your gift will be a candle in our house. But he had gone, and when I looked to meet his eyes, and hungering instead there in his place was a bleeding, pale-faced boy, plastered in mud. The red-hot pokers blazed a lovely red in jerpoint 
the Sunday I was murdered, he said quietly. Now do you remember? You were there with poets when you got the word, and stayed there with them, while your own flesh and blood was carted to Belachi from the fuse. They showed more agitation at the news than you did. And here Heaney responds, but they were getting crisis first-hand, Colum. They had happened in on live sectarian assassination. I was dumb, encountering what was destined. And so I pleaded with my second cousin. I kept seeing a gray stretch of Loch Beg and the strand empty at daybreak. I felt like the bottom of a dried-up lake. And here is the response from his cousin. You saw that, and you wrote that. Not the fact. You confused evasion and artistic tact. The Protestant who shot me through the head, I accused directly. But indirectly, you, who now atone perhaps upon this bed, for the way you whitewashed ugliness and drew the lovely blinds of the purgatorio and saccharined my death with morning dew. And then Heaney's thoughts. Then I seemed to waken out of sleep among more pilgrims whom I did not know, drifting to the hostel for the night. That's an incredible poem. Um, and you can even say that uh, by making it as long as it is, uh, before getting to the point, it's more evasion. Um, but then he admits to the evasion. Uh, he has his dead cousin uh, scold him for turning his death into a poem of uh, throwing Dante at the head of it and making it a piece of art. Um, I believe what's, what, what is uh, also referenced here is that uh, Heaney was at a poetry reading at the time when the news came of his cousin's murder, and I'm sure I'll get to that when I read uh, the interviews that Heaney gave with uh, Dennis O'Driscoll. Um, it's just a, a, a hard thing to imagine having to do, and I give Heaney a lot of credit for uh, for trying. Um, in a poem where he is scolded for evasion and uh, making death and murder an aesthetic experience almost, he can still have the, uh, the couplet and the strand empty at daybreak. I felt like the bottom of a dried up lake. Um, there is no sense of this in any of the bog poems. Um, there is a sense of shame and of uh, self-accusation that he would be one to stand by and let these things happen, or he would be the one to stand by and observe it so that he could put it into a poem. There's the sense of, uh, of uh, using imagery from the troubles uh, in the poems, in the bog poems themselves, but there is no self-aware sense of, of shame like this, or of uh, uh, accusation or scolding, and one wonders what that poem would be. Uh, the Tolland Man, uh, 
accusing Heaney of of uh, making his horrible death into uh, even a beautifully brutal poem. Um, it's just one of the things that poetry can do, like nothing else. And since there's really only, uh, where did I put my book? Since there's really only half of one other poem from field work that I wanted to read here, I might as well just tack it on right here and see what it says. And this is from a sequence called field work. And this is uh, part five of field work. And then we will uh, give it up for the night here. Not the mud slick, not the black weedy water full of alder cones and pocked marked leaves. Not the cow parsley in winter with its cold whitened shins and wrists, its sibilance, its shaking. Not even the tart green shade of summer, thick with butterflies and fungus plump as a leather saddle, no, but in a still corner, braced to its pebble-dashed wall, heavy earth-drawn, all mouth and eye, the sunflower, dreaming umber. And I suppose just with that fragment, it's uh, uh, not a, a bad place to break uh, until he sort of gets his bearings again uh, over the next few collections. So to start with, here are two poems from Heaney's 1984 collection, Station Island. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, uh, Station Island is a place uh, of Catholic pilgrimage. So in the title sequence that I'll, I will read a poem from in a minute, uh, Heaney makes a trip there and as he goes along the pilgrimage route, he encounters uh, various people, various presences. But the first poem here that I wanted to read is called The Railway Children, and is, I believe, a memory of from Heaney's childhood of being out on the farm and listening to the radio and being sort of uh, enchanted by the magic of the voice coming through the, through the box and uh, of it traveling along the wires. And I'm pretty sure he picked up on this image and this experience again in his Nobel Prize lecture about 10 or 11 years later. This is called The Railway Children. When we climbed the slopes of the cutting, we were eye level with the white cups of the telegraph poles and the sizzling wires. Like lovely freehand, they curved for miles east and miles west beyond us, sagging under their burden of swallows. We were small and thought we knew nothing worth knowing. We thought words traveled the wires in the shiny pouches of raindrops, each one seated full with the light of the sky, the gleam of the lines, and ourselves 
so infinitesimally scaled we could stream through the eye of a needle. It's a wonderful little, little poem there. This is part seven then of Station Island. I had come to the edge of the water, soothed by just looking, idling over it as if it were a clear barometer or a mirror. When his reflection did not appear, but I sensed a presence entering into my concentration, on not being concentrated as he spoke my name. And though I was reluctant, I turned to meet his face, and the shock is still with me at what I saw. His brow was blown open above the eye, and blood had dried on his neck and cheek. Easy now, he said, it's only me. You've seen men as raw after a football match. What time it was. When I wakened up, I still don't know. But I heard this knocking, knocking, and it scared me, like the phone in the small hours. So I had the sense not to put on the light, but looked out from behind the curtain. I saw two customers on the doorstep, and an old Land Rover with the doors open, parked on the street. So I let the curtains drop. But they must have been waiting for it to move, for they shouted to me to come down into the shop. She started to cry then and roll round the bed, lamenting and lamenting to herself, not even asking who it was. Is your head astray, or what's come over you, I roared, more to bring myself to my senses than out of any real anger at her. For the knocking shook me the way they kept it up and her whinging and half-screeching made it worse. All the time they were shouting, Shop! Shop! So I pulled on my shoes and a sport coat, and went back to the window and called out, What do you want? Could you quieten the racket, or I'll not come down at all? And they say there's a child not well. Open up and see what you've got, pills or a powder or something in a bottle, one of them said. He stepped back off the footpath so I could see his face in the street lamp, and when the other moved, I knew them both. But bad and all as the knocking was, the quiet hit me worse. She was quiet herself now, lying dead still, whispering to watch out. At the bedroom door, I switched on the light. It's odd they didn't look for a chemist. Who are they anyway at this time of night? she asked me, with the eyes standing in her head. I know them to see, I said, but something made me reach and squeeze her hand across the bed before I went downstairs into the aisle of the shop. I stood there, going weak in the legs. I remember the stale smell of cooked meat or something coming through, and I went to open up. From then on, you know as much about it as I do. Did they say nothing? Nothing. What would they say? Were they in uniform, not masked in any way? They were barefaced, as they would be in the day, shites thinking they were the be-all and the end-all. Not that it is any consolation, but they were caught, I told him, and got jail. Big-limbed, decent, open-faced, he stood forgetful of everything now, except whatever was 
welling up in his spoiled head, beginning to smile. You've put on weight since you did your courting in that big Austin you got the loan of on a Sunday night. Through life and death he had hardly aged. There always was an athlete's cleanliness, shining often, and except for the ravaged forehead and the blood, he was still the same rangy midfielder in a blue jersey and starched pants, the one stylist on the team, the perfect, clean, unthinkable victim. Forgive the way I have lived indifferent. Forgive my timid, circumspect involvement, I surprised myself by saying. Forgive my eye, he said, all that's above my head. And then a stun of pain seemed to go through him, and he trembled like a heat wave and faded. And you can go back to the uh, previous episode I read of Heaney here, where I read part eight from Station Island. And it's interesting that he encounters saints, and he uh, also writes of encountering the spirit of James Joyce. But uh, my favorite poems from Station Island remain the ones where he encounters people that he knew who were murdered in the Troubles. I don't have all of my Heaney books here with me in the car where I'm reading, otherwise I could tell you this man's name. Um, but those seem to be the, one that, the ones that strike me most deeply, the ones that uh, assume you know something of Heaney's life and that uh, give a bit of details on his life that this dead person would have remembered and would have remarked on. Um, it's also nice uh, if you're holding the book, if you're reading Station Island, looking at the page. You may not know it from how I was reading it, but it's written in uh, uh, Tirsitz, uh Heaney's version of Terza Rima, uh, Dante's old, uh, old meter, um, or some version of it. And um, it's nice to see Heaney using that form basically for the vernacular. Uh, a friend of mine emailed me the other day after having listened to some of the other Heaney episodes, and he says that he's, uh, he admires Heaney the most when he uh, puts down the pyrotechnics. And I think this is definitely an example of that. Uh, a poem of mourning, a poem of memory, a bit of autobiography, uh, two and a half pages of plain mourning speech of a man who was uh, who owned a business, lived above the business, and was called down there to the front door in the middle of the night and was murdered. Um, that will tell you what the plain speech of poetry can be and what it can do. The Scribes by Seamus Heaney I never warmed to them. If they were excellent, they were petulant and jaggy, as the holly tree they rendered down for ink. And if I never belonged among them, they could never deny me my place. 
In the hush of the scriptorium, a black pearl kept gathering in them, like the old dry glut inside their quills. In the margin of the text of praise they scratched and clawed. They snarled if the day was dark, or too much chalk had made their vellum bland, or too little left it oily. Under the rumps of lettering they herded myopic angers, resentment seated in the uncurling fernheads of their capitals. Now and again I started up miles away and saw in my absence the sloped cursive of each back and felt them perfect themselves against me page by page. Let them remember this not inconsiderable contribution to their jealous art. So I saw an ad today in a British paper uh, for Prospect magazine, and it says three issues of Prospect for just one pound. And if that wasn't enough there, they will also give you a free copy of a book called Somewhere Becoming Rain by the poet and critic Clive James. And I was wondering what this freebie was that might entice someone who already wasn't sure if they wanted to spend a pound. But when they saw that they could get a book by Clive James, that would clinch the deal. And I laughed because this book by Clive James is a collection of his essays on the poet Philip Larkin. And I really couldn't think of an equivalent magazine in the United States uh, making a similar offer uh, and giving away a book by a prominent critic collecting their essays about any American poet in the last hundred years. I just don't think that that is something that they would do. That's not something that Americans go for. And that brings me to, to tonight's poem by uh, Seamus Heaney. And this also makes me think of what we don't quite have in America. And that is that uh, RTE, which is, a, I suppose, is the uh, Irish equivalent of NPR, had a poll about five or six years ago for the favorite Irish poem of the 20th century. Now this obviously includes Yeats, it includes Avon Boland, um, and who are the others? I had the article up right here. Lewis McNeese, Derek Mahon, Patrick Kavanaugh, I'm sure many others, but the one that came out on top is this one by Seamus Heaney. It is the third poem in his sonnet sequence that is uh, dedicated to the memory of his mother who died in 1984. And perhaps it isn't Heaney's best poem, but it shows what, uh, what popular effect good poetry can still have uh, in the public. This is a gorgeous po little poem here. This is what it says. When all the others were away at mass, I was all hers as we peeled potatoes. They broke the silence, let fall one by one, like solder weeping off the soldering iron, 
cold comforts set between us, things to share gleaming in a bucket of clean water, and again let fall little pleasant splashes from each other's work would bring us to our senses. So, while the parish priest at her bedside went hammer and tongs at the prayers for the dying, and some were responding and some crying, I remembered her head bent towards my head, her breath in mine, our fluent dipping knives, never closer the whole rest of our lives. The Mud Vision by Seamus Heaney Statues with exposed hearts and barbed wire crowns still stood in alcoves. Hairs flitted beneath the dozing bellies of jets. Our menu writers and punks with aerosol spray held their own with the best of them. Satellite link-ups wafted over us the blessings of popes. Heliports maintained a charmed circle for idols, on tour and casualties on their stretchers. We sleepwalked the line between panic and formula, screen-tested our first native models and the last of the mummers, watching ourselves at a distance, advantaged and airy as a man on a springboard who keeps limbering up because the man cannot dive. And then, in the foggy midlands it appeared, our mud vision, as if a rose window of mud had invented itself out of the glittery damp, a gossamer wheel concentric with its own hub of nebulous dirt, sullied yet lucent. We had heard of the sun standing still and the sun that changed color, but we were vouchsafed original clay transfigured and spinning. And then the sunsets ran murky. The wiper could never never entirely clean off the windscreen. Reservoirs tasted of silt. A light fuzz accrued in the hair and the eyebrows. And some took to wearing a smudge on their foreheads to be prepared for whatever. Vigils began to be kept around the puddled gaps. On altars, bulrushes ousted the lilies, and a rota of invalids came and went. On beds they could lease, placed in range of the shower. A generation who had seen a sign. Those nights when we stood in an umber dew and smelled mold and verbena, or woke to a light furrow breath on the pillow. When the talk was all about who had seen it, and our fear was touched with a secret pride, only ourselves could be adequate then to our lives. When the rainbow curved flood brown and ran like a water rat's back, so that drivers on the hard shoulders switched off to watch, we wished it away, and yet we presumed it a test that would prove us beyond expectation. We lived, of course, to learn the folly of that. One day it was gone in the east gable where its trembling corolla 
had balanced was starkly a ruin again, with dandelions blowing high up on the ledges and moss that slumbered on through its increase. As cameras raked the site from every angle, experts began their post-factum jabber, and all of us crowded in tight for the big explanations. Just like that, we forgot that the vision was ours, our one chance to know the incomparable and dive to a future. What might have been origin we dissipated in news. The clarified place had retrieved neither us nor itself, except you could say we survived. So say that, and watch us who had our chance to be mudmen, convinced and estranged, figure in our own eyes for the eyes of the world. When Shimasini published his uh, book called Seeing Things in 1991, included there is a 48-part uh, sequence of poems called Squarings uh, that I think are probably the best thing he ever did. Uh, they may even uh, surpass the poems that he wrote in uh, his 1975 book North. Um, and I just wanted to spend the next few days reading my favorites from them, maybe a dozen or so of the ones that I think are the best. Um, they don't even have any titles, they're just numbered. And uh, the first of the one that I, first of the ones that I love is uh, the second one in the entire sequence, number two. And it says this, roof it again, batten down, dig in, drink out of tin, Know the scullery cold, a latch, a door bar, forged tongs and a grate. Touch the crossbeam, drive iron in a wall, hang a line to verify the plum from lintel, coping stone and chimney breast. Relocate the bedrock in the threshold, take squarings from the recessed gable pane, make your study the unregarded floor. Sink every impulse like a bolt. Secure the bastion of sensation. Do not waver into language. Do not waver in it. And the next one is number eight. The annals say, When the monks of Clonmacnoise were all at prayers inside the oratory, a ship appeared above them in the air. The anchor dragged along behind so deep it hooked itself into the altar rails. And then, as the big hull rocked to a standstill, a crewman shinned and grappled down the rope and struggled to release it, but in vain. This man can't bear our life here and will drown, the abbot said, unless we help him. So... They did. The freed ship sailed, and the man climbed back out of the marvelous as he had known it. And uh, just as an aside, 
uh, that story. I first came across that story, must have been in the seventh or the eighth grade, reading Whitley Strieber's book Communion, uh, his uh, memoir of, uh, first of his memoirs of having been abducted by aliens, and this story is told uh, because it really is in the annals of the monks. Um, the story was told as proof of there being aliens and alien abductions uh, far back in the past. And then, uh, if you have a chance to find the old Penguin classic called A Celtic Miscellany, uh, Kenneth Hurlstone Jackson translates uh, a wonderful, uh, it's an appropriate title, he does a, a wonderful miscellany of stuff from all over Celtic uh, mythology and literature. And this is one of the stories that he uh, translates there as well. And I'm pretty sure that that is where Haney first uh, saw this story. Uh, the next one, and I suppose the last one I'll read tonight, read tonight is number 15. And strike this scene in gold too, in relief, so that a greedy eye cannot exhaust it. Stable straw, Rembrandt gleam and burnish, where my father bends to a tea chest packed with salt. The hurricane lamp held up at eye level in his bunched left fist, his right hand foraging for the unbleeding, vivid fleshed bacon, home cured hocks pulled up into the light for pondering a while and putting back. That night I owned the piled grain of Egypt. I watched the century's torchlight on the hoard. I stood in the door, unseen and blazed upon. And here are three more poems from Seamus Heaney's sequence called Squarings. This is number 25. Traveling south at dawn, going full out through high up Stonewall country, the rocks still cold, rainwater gleaming here and there ahead. I took a turn and met the fox stock still, face to face in the middle of the road. A wildness tore through me as he dipped and wheeled in a level-running tawny breakaway. Oh, neat head, fabled brush and astonished eye, my blue Volkswagen flared into with morning. Let rebirth come through water, through desire, through crawling backwards across clinic floors. I have to cross back through that startled iris. And this is number 27. Everything flows. Even a solid man, a pillar to himself and to his trade. All yellow boots and stick and soft felt hat. Can sprout wings at the ankle and grow fleet. As the god of fair days, stone posts, roads and crossroads. Guardian of travelers and psychopomp. Look for a man with an ash plant on the boat. My father told his sister, setting out for London, 
and stay near him all night, and you'll be safe. Flow on, flow on, the journey of the soul with its soul guide, and the mysteries of dealing men with sticks. And this is number 31. Not an avenue and not a bower. For a quarter mile or so, where the country road is running straight across North Antrim Bog, tall old fir trees line it on both sides. Scotch firs, that is. Calligraphic shocks, bushed and tufted in prevailing winds. You drive into a meaning made of trees, or not exactly trees. It is a sense of running through and under, without let, of glimpse and dapple, a life all trace and skim the car has vanished out of, a fanned nape sensitive to the millionth of a flicker. And here are the last five poems I was going to read from Seamus Heaney's much longer uh, sequence of poems called Squarings from his 1991 book called Seeing Things. This is number 32. Running water never disappointed. Crossing water always further something. Stepping stones were stations of the soul. A kesh could mean the track, some called a cause, raised above the wetness of the bog, or the cause where it bridged old drains and streams. It steadies me to tell these things. Also, I cannot mention keshes or the ford without my father's shade appearing to me, on a path toward sunset, eyeing spades and clothes that turf cutters stowed perhaps, or souls cast off before they crossed the log that spans the burn. And as usual, Heaney cannot help but write about uh, now the memory of his father. This is uh, number 40. I was four, but I turned 400 maybe encountering the ancient, dampish feel of a clay floor, maybe four thousand even. Anyhow, there it was, milk poured for cats and a rank puddle place, splash-darkened mold around the terracotta watercrock, ground of being, body's deep obedience to all its shifting tenses, a half-door opening directly into starlight, out of that earth house I inherited a stack of singular, cold memory weights to load me, hand and foot, in the scale of things. And number 42. Heather and cash and turf stacks reappear, summer by summer still, grasshoppers and all, the same yet rarer, 
fields of the nearly blessed where gaunt ones in their shirt sleeves stooped and dug or stood alone at dusk, surveying bog banks. Apparitions now, yet active still and territorial, still sure of their ground, still interested, not knowing how far the country of the shades has been pushed back, how long the lark has stopped outside these fields, and only seems unstoppable to them, caught like a far hill in a freak of sunshine. And this is number 45. For certain ones, what was written may come true. They shall live on in the distance at the mouths of rivers. For our ones, no. They will re-enter dryness that was heaven on earth to them, happy to eat the scones baked out of clay. For some, perhaps, the deltas reed beds and cold, bright-footed seabirds always wheeling. For our ones, snuff and hobsoot and the heat off ashes. And a judge who comes between them and the sun and a pillar of radiant house dust. And the very last one, number, last one for me, number 46. Mountain air from the mountain up behind. Out front, the end of summer, stone-walled fields. And in a slated house, the fiddle going like a flat stone skimmed at sunset. Or the irrevocable slipstream of flat earth still fleeing behind space. Was music once a proof of God's existence? As long as it admits things beyond measure, that supposition stands. So let the ear attend like a farmhouse window in placid light, where the extravagant passed once under full sail into the longed-for. Here are two more poems from Seamus Heaney's collection, Seeing Things. The first is the title poem called Seeing Things. In Ishbofen on a Sunday morning, sunlight, turf smoke, seagulls, boat slip, diesel. One by one we were being handed down into a boat that dipped and shilly-shallied scarcely every time. We sat tight on short cross benches in nervous twos and threes, obedient, newly close, nobody speaking except the boatmen, as the gunwales sank and seemed they might ship water any minute. The sea was very calm, but even so, when the engine kicked and our ferrymen swayed for balance, reaching for the tiller, I panicked at the shiftiness and heft of the craft itself. What guaranteed us that quick response and buoyancy and swim kept me in agony. All the time, as we went sailing evenly across the deep, still, seeable down into water, 
It was as if I looked from another boat, sailing through air far up, and could see how riskily we fared into the morning, and loved in vain our bare, bowed, numbered heads. Claritas, the dry-eyed Latin word, is perfect for the carved stone of the water where Jesus stands up to his unwet knees and John the Baptist pours out more water over his head. All this in bright sunlight on the facade of a cathedral. Lines hard and thin and sinuous represent the flowing water. Down between the lines little antic fish are all go, nothing else. And yet, in that utter visibility, the stone's alive with what's invisible. Waterweed, stirred sand grains hurrying off, the shadowy, unshadowed stream itself. All afternoon, heat wavered on the steps, and the air we stood up to our eyes in wavered like a zigzag hieroglyph for life itself. Once upon a time, my undrowned father walked into our yard. He had gone to spray potatoes in a field on the river bank and wouldn't bring me with him. The horse sprayer was too big and newfangled. Blue stone might burn me in the eyes. The horse was fresh. I might scare the horse, and so on. I threw stones at a bird on the shed roof, as much for the clatter of the stones as anything. But when he came back, I was inside the house, and saw him out the window, scatter-eyed and daunted, strange without his hat, his step unguided, his ghosthood imminent. When he was turning on the river bank, the horse had rusted and reared up, and pitched cart and sprayer and everything off balance, so the whole rig went over into a deep whirlpool. Hoofs, chains, shafts, cartwheels, barrel and tackle all tumbling off the world, and the hat already merrily swept along the quieter reaches. That afternoon I saw him face to face. He came to me with his damp footprints out of the river, and there was nothing between us there that might not still be happily ever after. And as we will learn when I read from the interviews that Heaney gave about this collection, uh, it was written in part uh, as a response to the death of Heaney's father. And uh, that is what this uh, second poem is about. It's only three very short lines. And the title is 1187. And this is all it says. Dangerous Pavements but I face the ice this year with my father's stick. Here are three poems from Seamus Heaney's last book, Human Chain. 
published in 2010, just three years before he died. Uh, they are about old age, as it would be, and uh, the infirmities of the body and all the rest. But what comes through is still the sharpness of his mind and uh, of his perception and of his memory. This first poem called Uncoupled uh, is a memory of his rural childhood on the farm in Northern Ireland. Uh, and it is about his parents. The first part is about his mother. The second is about his father. But then uh, the entirety is about separation. It is called Uncoupled and in part is about uh, how he ended up going off to boarding school. And by this time, uh, Heaney being in old age himself is just as much about the separation that he felt uh, when his parents uh, themselves died. So this is Uncoupled, part one about his mother. Who is this coming to the ash pit, walking tall, as if in a procession, bearing in front of her a slender pan withdrawn just now from underneath the firebox, weighty, full to the brim with whitish dust and flakes still sparkling hot, that the wind is blowing into her apron bib, into her mouth and eyes, while she proceeds unwavering, keeping her burden horizontal still, hands in a tight, sore grip round the metal knob, proceeds until we have lost sight of her, where the worn path turns behind the hen house. And you would hardly think that that would be a subject for a poem at all. It is just a flash. You can imagine uh, a flash of memory and just turning it into a beautiful little scene like that. Watching your mother and then uh, you and your brothers and sisters, and then watching her go behind the hen house. Part two was about his father. His father is always walking with his ash plant, with his, with his stick. Who is this, not much higher than the cattle, working his way towards me through the pen, his ash plant in one hand, lifted and pointing, a stick of keel in the other, calling to where I am perched on top of a shaky gate, waving and calling something I cannot hear, with all the lowing and roaring, lorries revering at the far end of the yard, the dealers shouting among themselves, and now to him, so that his eyes leave mine, and I know the pain of loss before I know the term. And here is the second poem. It is called Miracle. Uh, where Heaney takes a scene from the Gospels and uh, does something incredible with it. Uh, I will just read it uh, on its own. It needs no other comment. Uh, not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in, their shoulders numb, the ache and stoop deep locked in their backs, the stretcher handles slippery with sweat, and no let-up until he's strapped on tight, made tiltable and raised to the tiled roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait, for the burn of the paid-out ropes to cool, their slight light-headedness and incredulity to pass, those ones who had known him all along.
that is still just an incredible poem. Uh, having heard that story many times uh, in my childhood to suddenly see it anew again. Um, I can't add one comment. I believe that Heaney said that he got the idea to write the poem not about the man who was healed, but about the people carrying the stretcher uh, because of, uh, I believe, a stroke or uh, some illness that he had where, where his wife had to call for an ambulance and he remembered uh, the, uh, the paramedics who arrived and strapped him to the stretcher and took him to the hospital. Um, the very last bit that I will read from is just uh, three stanzas from a longer poem called In the Attic. And it just shows, uh, this is his last book. He was born in 1939. This book came out in 2010. Um, and he died in 2013. Uh, that he was conscious of all that was happening to his body and was happening to his mind. But he still had that same energy, that same observation, that same uh, uh, inspiration and world tilt feeling that he mentions here. And this is what it says. As I age and blank on names, as my uncertainty on stairs is more and more the lightheadedness of a cabin boy's first time on the rigging, as the memorable bottoms out into the irretrievable, it's not that I can't imagine still that slight untoward rupture and world tilt as a wind freshened and the anchor weighed. So up until the very end, he had it. That is good to know. And here are two poems from Seamus Heaney's 1996 book, Spirit Level. The first is another short poem about his father, only three lines, and it is called The Strand. The dotted line my father's ash plant made on Sandy Mount Strand is something else the tide won't wash away. And the second one, I believe this is the last poem in the book, is just called Postscript. And sometime make the time to drive out west into County Clare, along the flaggy shore in September or October, when the wind and the light are working off each other, so that the ocean on one side is wild with foam and glitter, and inland among stones the surface of a slate-gray lake is lit by the earthed lightning of a flock of swans, their feathers ruffed and ruffling white on white, their fully grown, headstrong-looking heads tucked or cresting or busy underwater. Useless to think you'll park and capture it more thoroughly. You are neither here nor there, a hurry through which known and strange things pass as big soft buffetings come at the car sideways and catch the heart off guard and blow it open.
and I can uh, I can't understand but I can see how it's poems like that late in Heaney's career that uh, people who are apt to criticize him uh, do criticize him for uh, sort of uh, sort of um, what they might see as corny wisdom of a poem like that uh, but I think it's uh, quite beautiful um, let's see what the next one is here the next are two poems from two three poems from his 2006 book District and Circle. The first is called A Shiver and is just about someone uh, putting in a fence basically. Um, but as Heaney told it, what he was thinking about at the time when he wrote it was the experience, mostly the political experience, that uh, any victim feels when a country or a force of immensely uh, superior strength to their own feels the might of that army or of that uh, political influence. But it's also about that huge force and what it is like to wield it or to to wield it wisely or to not wield it wisely, how hard it is to manage might and force. And we might even think, even though this is just about putting in a fence um, and knocking the posts into the ground, um, it might even uh, have something to say about the atomic bomb episodes that I just did. This is called A Shiver. The way you had to stand to swing the sledge, your two knees locked, your lower back shock fast, as shields in a testudo, spine and waist a pivot for the tight-braced, tilting rib edge. The way its iron head planted the sledge unyieldingly as a club-footed last. The way you had to heft and then half-rest its gathered force like a long-nursed rage about to let fly. Does it do you good to have known it in your bones, directable, withholdable at will, a first blow that could make air of a wall, a last one so unanswerably landed the staked earth quailed and shivered in the handle? And I never realized what wonderful sounds are in that poem. It sounds like uh, there's a lot of staccato. It's hard to read one line of that almost in one breath because the syllables make you stop. It feels like something that is indeed being hammered. This is, uh, the next poem is the very first part of the title poem, District and Circle, where Heaney goes uh, along one of the lines of the of the London Underground, uh, but I've always preferred just this very first poem in that sequence. This is what it says: Tunes from a tin whistle underground, curled up a corridor I'd been walking down, to where I knew I was always going to find my watcher on the tiles, cap by his side, his fingers perked, his two eyes eyeing me 
in an unaccusing look I'd not avoid, or just not yet, since both were out to sea for ourselves. As the music larked and capered, I'd trigger and untrigger a hot coin held the ready. But now my gaze was lowered, for was our traffic not in recognition? A corded passage I would repocket and nod, and he, still eyeing me, would also nod. And I remember being in New York City uh, when my wife and I lived in Brooklyn for a time, uh, and seeing the uh, subway musicians there, either at the stops or inside the trains. And it's a nice image here of uh, someone playing a tin whistle, uh, getting a coin from Seamus Heaney, of all people, and you wonder if he recognized Seamus Heaney. And also just the recognition that Heaney has himself, uh, that his poetry is, if not akin, at least uh, in the same family, um, even if just a distant relative, as this tin whistle. And also just the idea of going underground, the uh, the underworld and death and having to pay your coin. Um, there's an awful lot in here. The third poem from District and Circle is called A Hagging Match. And this is another one about uh, uh, sort of like a shiver about someone doing outside work, except in this case it is Heaney's wife. Um, I don't think I've shared a poem specifically about Heaney's wife uh, since uh, there's a poem just called A Poem from his first collection uh, from a few months ago. But by, by old age, this is Heaney's idea of a love poem, and I, and I do think it works. He says, Axe thumps outside like a wave hits through a night ferry, you, whom I cleave to, hew to, splitting firewood. And that's short enough that I'll just read it again. It's called a hagging match. Axe thumps outside like a wave hits through a night ferry, you, whom I cleave to, hew to, splitting firewood. And I think if I remember this right, uh, there's a, an interview with him, you can probably find it on a podcast somewhere, um, where, he, where Seamus Heaney is at a book festival, so he's being interviewed in front of a crowd. And people sort of laugh at the idea that uh, Seamus Heaney is up in his attic, up, up in his uh, writing room, and it's his wife who's the one outside uh, chopping wood splitting the firewood. And I have two more poems, short poems, from Heaney's very last book, uh, Human Chain. And the first, he had a bunch of sequences in that last book. Um, and the first is from a sequence of poems called Colum Chil, named after the great Irish monk and saint, I believe of the seventh or eighth century. And this is just the first part of that poem. My hand is cramped from penwork. My quill has a tapered point. 
Its bird mouth issues a blue-dark beetle sparkle of ink. Wisdom keeps welling in stream from my fine-drawn sallow hand. River run <clears throat> on the vellum of ink from green-skinned holly. My small runny pen keeps going through books, through thick and thin, to enrich the scholar's holdings, pen work that cramps my hand. And of course, in that sense, pen work that cramps my hand, what, what you're probably meant to go back to is Heaney's first poem in his first book, uh, where his father and his grandfather are digging in the yard, loving the cool hardness of what they're picking, loving the cool hardness in their hands. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun, as he ends his own poem. Um, and now, at, uh, at the end of his life, pen work that cramps my hand. And then, of course, connecting that all the way back to the great Irish saint and monk, and using the term River Run from uh, Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. It's all, it's all right there at the end. And, and the very last one from Human Chain is from a sequence called Hermit Songs. And he dedicates Hermit Songs to the, the critic who I believe is at Harvard, is still there, named Helen Vendler who's a great champion of his poetry, and he dedicated this sequence to her. This is part nine of that sequence. He says, A great one has put faith in meaning that runs through space like a word, screaming and protesting. Another in, quote, poet's imaginings and memories of love, end quote. Mine for now I put in steady-handedness, maintained in books against its vanishing. Book of Lismore, Kells, Armagh, of Lecan, its great yellow book. The battler, berry-browned enshrined, the cured hides, the much-tried pens. And of course he's talking about animal pens there, but in another way he is not. He's bringing the pen back again. Um, that may not be a great poem, uh, just as a one-off like that, um, but it takes in so much, especially since it is from the end of his life. Uh, Steady-handedness maintained in books against its vanishing, the hand again, the pen. Uh, the great religious books, the great uh, uh, illuminated religious books, the books of Linsmore, the Book of Kells, uh, done in the uh, in the Irish monasteries, and the Yellow Book of Lacan, that held so much of the great Irish mythology, and the the cattle, the cattle that is there throughout Heaney's poetry, and that becomes such a uh, such a presence in Irish mythology, especially with the Dain Bocúnia, and here again the the idea of the the hides of the animals being used. Uh, being used for a writing surface. So you have all of this coming only a few years before Heaney's death. I figure that I should just end it here then with Heaney 
it's strange. I and uh, all the other. I think I've mentioned this. And all the other reading that I've done for the poets that I've gone all the way through so far, uh, Robinson Jeffers most especially, um, as I've gone through their poetry, I've only found them to be stronger and stronger the more uh, the more that I've read them. Reading Heaney over the past few months, he sort of slipped in a way in my estimation, as if my estimation means very much other than uh, as a as a mile marker in my own mind of where I am, really. But still, it's worth noticing um, that he does seem a little bit more slight, that there is the beginning of his career uh, from the early 60s, reaching a height in the mid-70s with North, and sort of dipping again until uh, 1990 or so um, with his book, uh, Seeing Things. And... But between North and Seeing Things and after Seeing Things up until Human Chain, I'm not sure that I see anything quite as huge or as lasting as maybe I once did. And I just wanted to share a, a memory that I had before reading uh, one last piece of Heaney's poetry here. And that is, uh, I must have been, it was in the winter of 1995, so... Where would I have been? I would have been a junior in high school. Is that right? Or a sophomore in high school? Yeah, I would have been a sophomore in high school. And um, I remember going to a restaurant. Uh, by then I had started going to restaurants on my own. So this must have been a little later than that. In any case, whenever it was, um, and if the memory is correct, um, I met someone there who had a copy of the New York Times, and I think it was announcing his win for the Nobel Prize, which was, I think, in 95. And they had an excerpt from the very first poem. They had an excerpt from a poem in there, in the article. And it was the very first poem of Heaney's that I ever saw, that I ever read. And I've always associated uh, rest stops, uh, truck stop restaurants, places like that, with writing. Um, I've always associated going out to eat uh, by myself when I was younger with creativity, with uh, even in a small suburban way of leaving what is known to just going and sitting at a table and uh, the possibility of anything happening or of just finding quiet uh, eventually in an all-night restaurant where no one really knows who you are, there's also that possibility. Meeting a crowd of friends suddenly or of being given silence uh, at the long row of chairs up at the counter. And on this night I did meet with someone who showed me this poem. And I'll read it here again. This is part eight from uh, Heaney's sequence, uh, Squarings. And this is what it says. The annals say, those are the Irish annals, the annals say when the monks of Clonmacnoise were all at prayers inside the oratory, a ship appeared above them in the air. The anchor dragged along behind so deep, it hooked itself into the altar rails, and then, as the big hull rocked to a standstill, 
A crewman shinned and grappled down the rope and struggled to release it, but in vain. This man can't bear our life here and will drown, the abbot said, unless we help him. So they did. The freed ship sailed and the man climbed back out of the marvelous as he had known it. And uh, as you'll remember from the episode I did on Heaney's book, Seeing Things, Heaney himself says that he got that from a small section in the Irish Annals, and it's just a small paragraph, and he turns that paragraph into a miraculous little poem. And at least in my life, this is strange, but um, I remember reading about this anecdote in Whitley Strieber's book from the late 80s called Communion about his uh, experiences, his, his claimed experiences of being abducted by aliens. And he used this, uh, not the poem, but the, the paragraph from the annals as, a, as an example of how long aliens have been among humans and how frequently indeed they have been uh, in contact with us and apparently taking us onto their ships and doing whatever it is that they do. And I was a great fan of stories like that in high school, especially the X-Files. Uh, one of the great memories of my life has been, uh, just for just for what it symbolizes, has been um, staying home uh, my freshman year of high school, staying home on a Friday night in September, it must have been. Uh, I was told, you know, basically, if you want to make friends, if you want to go out uh, uh, on, a, on a night in high school and, and be with people, you want to go to the Friday night football games. And I made sure that first Friday that instead of going to the game, I, I uh, stayed inside, stayed at home, and watched the first episode of this new TV series called The X-Files. So I connect that poem with, uh, not just with my early interest in things like Aliens and Art Bell's uh, overnight talk show, things like that. But then, of course, I connect it with my later knowledge of the Irish annals of, uh, of monks and my interest, wider interest in uh, religion and monasticism. Uh, later on, uh, if you look at a copy of the American edition of Seeing Things, what it has on the front is the, that wonderful artifact uh, called the the Breuder, Breuger boat, I believe, uh, a tiny uh, punched, I believe it's punched gold artifact from the Iron Age. Um, so it brings archaeology in there with me. And just the idea of, I mean, this could very well just be a huge metaphor for, uh, for creativity itself, someone climbing down the ropes and having to be freed. Um, in one sense, I've been talking to a friend of mine over email, and he and I both remember, we have vivid memories of encountering writers when we were much younger, and there were certain of them who got a lot of attention and who seemed very, um, uh, they wrote about, they wrote a lot, everybody gave them a lot of attention, and you were sure that was going to be the person who was going to be the famous published writer. 
And it turns out that uh, even though my friend and I are not famous or widely published, we have discovered that we are sort of the only ones or one of the only ones out of our little groups that we had who are still uh, writing regularly. And in a way you can see this, uh, this person climbing down the, the rope uh, as being someone who discovered poetry when they were young and, and then just sort of lost it or, or the, the, the impulse to write. And so they had to get help from the monks to free themselves. They could go back to where they were. But there are some people, uh, whether foolishly or wisely or whatever it is, climbed down the rope uh, and then uh, took the anchor out themselves and let the ship of where they had been fly off to wherever it was going. And they were ready to enter into this new world. And for me, that has always been the world of poetry, the world of uh, folklore or mythology, um, of just trying to put things into words as best as I can. Uh, so that poem means an awful lot to me, especially because of where I first read it. I can still see the, uh, the old-style uh, wood paneling in the, in the truck stop restaurant, the... Uh, the the sort of new bar seats that could swivel, um, the, 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 the red countertop, uh, the place where the cooks were, um, the whole thing. A lot of it was very dark red, had that great memory there. Uh, even though the restaurant is long gone by now, um, I guess for posterity's sake, I will say that it was Applewood Restaurant at exit 218 along Interstate 90 in Ohio. Um, and that's just a a fantastic thing if I could have known in high school at that moment that uh, many years later I would be remembering that exact moment with that poem and suddenly uh, realizing how much affinity I would find with Heaney. Uh, it's quite moving. Um, but the next time that I encountered Seamus Heaney uh, was when a bookstore opened in my hometown and my friends and I all tried to do our best to buy books at this new bookstore. It was not a chain. It was someone who just wanted to open a bookstore. And very soon, even though it was just put into a, the back of a downtown uh, building, uh, even then, um, or especially then, I guess in a small town, the idea of charging full price for new books uh, in a place like that was not really the the best idea, especially if your clientele are either late teenagers or college students who dropped out of college and in any case don't have much money. But we all tried to buy new books there whenever we could just to help support the place. And the book that I bought was Heaney's translation of Beowulf. And I don't have my copy of it down here. Maybe I can go and get it. Hold on one second. Open this door. Yeah, it's somewhere else. 
But in any case, so what I my first my first impression then of Shane and this was before I remembered uh, that that I had encountered his poetry years before. My first impression of Heaney was reading his introduction to his translation of Beowulf, and there's a uh, a single syllable of uh, of of Old English that begins Beowulf, and many other translations uh, either make it archaic or something like that, and they translate it as hark, or um, something like that. I don't have the other translations at hand either, of course. And Heaney gives a great, uh, a great explanation about why he chose the word so, instead of hark, or look, or uh, you imagine someone uh, in a Shakespearean or a stage outfit saying hark or something like that, and it seems very dated immediately and you want to stop listening. Uh, but he did it with the very casual, uh, the very storytelling syllable of so. And he realized uh, in this passage that what he wanted, the, the kind of sound, the kind of music that he wanted his his translation of Beowulf to have was to have the, uh, the, the sound of the people he grew up with, the rural people that he grew up with in his family. And I admired that so much. I knew hardly anything about Heaney at the time, uh, as much as that introduction told me. And uh, it wasn't until a few years later that uh, I actually found his other books and started to read them in earnest all the way through. But I had such admiration for that. It was such a lesson about how to get on with poetry. And when I came to write my own long poem, To the House of the Sun, there was still that lingering lesson was, was always in the back of my mind there, that it should be something that... Uh, that could come out of the mouths of working people. Um, and I've just never forgotten it. And so the very last thing that I wanted to share here from Seamus Heaney's poetry is an excerpt from his translation of Beowulf. It's from the very end. And I'm almost positive that I will continue to read bits and pieces from Dennis O'Driscoll's book of interviews that he did with Heaney that I was doing uh, up until about a month ago. And there's another book that just came out about Heaney by, uh, by Roy Foster that I'm sure that I will read excerpts from. And at some point, I'm sure they will, they will have an edition of his letters, and I will share all of that here. But for now, and since this is the very last bit of poetry that I'm going to share by Seamus Heaney for a long time, until I do a complete reread of him and see what I think again. It's worth pointing out what I said, I think, the very first episode about Heaney that I did. And that is that it's very easy to see him as um, having a sort of uh, nostalgic look back at nature or back at his rural upbringing. Or it's easy to see him as being, uh, by the time he wins the Nobel, of being sort of a repository of uh, uh, easy poetic wisdom 
there's that uh, postscript poem that I just read that, that I can imagine people criticizing. But there's also a great darkness and a great violence in a lot of his stuff, especially the rural stuff. I didn't read the poem he wrote about uh, having to uh, kill cats on the farm as a boy and all of that. Um, and so this, this piece from, uh, from Beowulf, I think, is a good uh, way to end because it is a good reminder and even a good reset for those who think otherwise about Haney. This is one of my favorite passages uh, of anything. This is after Beowulf has died. This is from uh, nearly the very end of the poem. The Geat people built a pyre for Beowulf, stacked and decked it until it stood four square, hung with helmets, heavy war shields, and shining armor, just as he had ordered. Then his warriors laid him in the middle of it, mourning a lord far famed and beloved. On a height they kindled the hugest of all funeral fires. Fumes of wood smoke billowed darkly up. The blaze roared and drowned out their weeping. Wind died down and flames wrought havoc in the hot bone house, burning it to the core. They were disconsolate and wailed aloud for their lord's decease. A Geet woman, too, sang out in grief. With hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. Her nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies in piles, slavery and abasement. Heaven swallowed the smoke. Then the Geet people began to construct a mound on a headland, high and imposing, a marker that sailors could see from far away. And in ten days they had done the work. It was their hero's memorial. What remained from the fire they housed inside it, behind a wall as worthy of him as their workmanship could take it. And they buried torques in the barrow and jewels, and a trove of such things as trespassing men had once dared to drag from the hoard. They let the ground keep that ancient treasure, gold under gravel, gone to earth, as useless to men now as it ever was. Then twelve warriors rode around the tomb, chieftains' sons, champions in battle, all of them distraught, chanting in dirges, mourning his loss as a man and a king. They extolled his heroic nature and exploits, and gave thanks for his greatness, which was the proper thing. For a man should praise a prince whom he holds dear, and cherishes memory when that moment comes when he has to be conveyed from his bodily home. So the Geet people, his hearth companions, sorrowed for the Lord who had been laid low. They said that of all the kings upon the earth, he was the man most gracious and fair-minded, kindest to his people and keenest to win fame. And actually, I think that is the very end of Beowulf. Um, and when you consider, I'm sure I will come to it, in the interviews with Dennis O'Driscoll, that Heaney said that he almost took Beowulf on because he didn't want to do it, because he wanted to see it as as uh, 
an assignment that he might not be too passionately attached to. It's kind of incredible that he came out, that he was able to come out with that. But that also is the power of something that I will hopefully get to here, if I can ever uh, learn to read it out loud convincingly, and that is uh, the Old English, the uh, Anglo-Saxon. Um, that is the power of the Anglo-Saxon poetry, this great sense of mourning and doom that is hovering over just about everything. And while Heaney doesn't match the, uh, or doesn't try to replicate the alliteration of Beowulf in the original, he does get that dour, downbeat sense of doom here. And really the part that I wanted to highlight uh, was the, the Geet woman. I'll read it again because this sounds like uh, Afghanistan right now. Uh, it sounds like uh, anywhere in the world where this can happen. Um, I don't say that as a, uh, as I've mentioned uh, on the, the bomb episode. It's not a criticism of war or imagining that we can do a, a terribly great deal in the end about much of this. Um, we can certainly try to stop atrocities when they happen, but uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we can never stop all of them. And this Geet woman really is singing from the 8th century backwards and the 8th century forward. She could be uh, in a play by Euripides. She could be uh, back in Gilgamesh. If there is someone, uh, I remember the 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 prehistoric uh, cemetery at Egypt at Jebel Sahaba, long before there was any kind of uh, Egyptian civilization, you have a you have a uh, a cemetery there of filled with I think dozens of people who died by violence. Uh, this woman has been there the entire time, and I'll just read this again. A Geet woman, too, sang out in grief. With hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. Her nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies and piles, slavery and abasement. Heaven swallowed the smoke. And... We might as well might as well do let's see might as well do postscript again and see how these two sound side by side and I will end it here uh, these two are the two moods of Heaney and this is a good one to end all of them with and sometime make the time to drive out west into County Clare along the flaggy shore, in September or October, when the wind and the light are working off each other, so that the ocean on one side is wild with foam and glitter, and inland among stones the surface of a slate-gray lake is lit by the earthed lightning of a flock of swans, their feathers ruffed and ruffling white on white, their fully grown headstrong-looking heads tucked or cresting or busy underwater. Useless to think you'll park and capture it more thoroughly. You are neither here nor there, 
a hurry through which known and strange things pass, as big soft buffetings come at the car sideways, and catch the heart off guard and blow it open. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.